Fun, fun story around community and family as we get this thing going. Um, my youngest uh, kiddo, Miriam, is 14, and uh, she made a new friend, Maxine, about a year ago. And if you didn't know this, and any parents in the room, you do know, who your kids are friends with is really important for them, but it's also important for you as a parent. Because uh, if you're, you, you just want to have a good relationship with the parents that your kids are friends with. Does that make sense? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. And uh, so, you know, Jenny came home from meeting Maxine, Miriam's new friends. My wife came home and said, you have got to meet Maxine's parents. They're like our people. You're going to love them. And it was true. We met them, uh, Daniel and Holly, fell in love with them, got to hang out with them a ton over this winter. But um, the story fast forward to June, just a couple months ago, and it was eighth grade graduation, and Miriam and Maxine were graduating. Look at them. Oh, that's what I was looking for. Okay, take the slide down. Take the slide down. They graduate eighth grade. They're getting ready to go to high school, and you know the families are all at the graduation. And I did the thing that any good son would do. My parents were up from Salem, and Maxine's grandmother was down from Coeur d'Alene. So I was like, oh, these, you know, my parents and. Daniel's parents about the same age, I'll introduce them, right? That's what you do. You're just like, hey, so mom, this is, you know, Marty and, you know, Maxine's grandmother, and I was looking for something in common. I was like, hey, both of you guys, you know, spent a lot of time, raised your families in California. And then Marty, who's Maxine's grandmother, said, yeah, but that's not where I'm from. And I was like, oh, okay, where are you from? And she said, she's talking to my mom, and it's the three of us, and she's talking to my mom. She says, yeah, I'm originally from Kentucky. And my mom says, oh, well, where in Kentucky? And she says, from Princeton, it's a small little town. And my mom says, oh, well, my family, the Randolph family, is from Princeton. And then Marty looks at her and she goes, are you Llewellyn? And my mom's like, yes. Turns out they're cousins. <laughs> now, hang on. I grew up on the West Coast, and I have three cousins. And I know all of them. And if I saw, I would know if they were going to be at a mutual event for some kind of graduation. But apparently, my mom and Marty were not surprised at all. They were like, oh, this is how we grew up in Kentucky. We have cousins all over the place. I'm like, <laughs> and, uh, and their parents were both from uh, a family with 11 siblings. So you could see, yeah, you know, there's a lot of, but here's the thing. So then uh, I hear that, and I'm like, oh, that's, that's great. And then my wife Jenny's like, what? Wait till I tell the girls. So she goes across, you know, where they're having, like, you know, after the eighth grade graduation, they're having juice and cookies or whatever, and goes and tells them, and I hear an audible scream from the other room as the girls are, like, hugging and telling them, we're cousins, you know? And all the other eighth grade girls are like, you know, what about us? And, um, but it was, it was pretty awesome, you know? Now, here's the thing. Um, so actually, they're third cousins, because Daniel and I are first. No, no, my mom and his mom are first cousins. Daniel and I are second cousins, so our kids are third cousins. You can work out the family tree later. <laughs> Point being, we say all the time, you know, community is like family. You can't pick it. And, but I am here to say that actually you can, it turns out. <laughs> pick who is in your family, and it worked out really good for me. Especially, <laughs> this is sad, but one of my first thoughts was, I was like, Daniel has a boat that we can wake surf behind. That means I have a boat. It's like in the family now. So a lot more wake surfing, which I'm really happy about. So we are um, talking about community. And really, the best place to begin 
to think about like how community should be and how it works is to look at the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But before we get there, in a moment of honesty, close your eyes, we're gonna do a thought experience, okay? Experiment, experiment, and experience. Close your eyes. If you like were to, right now, think about God, what image comes to mind? Like in general, normally, when you think of God, when you direct your thoughts towards God, what image comes to mind? So just kind of draw that image to mind. Okay, open your eyes. Uh, A.W. Tozer, the great pastor, thinker, theologian, said that the most important thing about you, about a person, is what they think of when they think of God. For instance, if you think of God like this, he's like an old white guy, super ripped and angry. And he's like Zeus, that's who that is, I think. It's like not a perfect, you know, like a photo. But, uh, you know, if you imagine... If you imagine God like that, and you step just out of line and you know, throws a lightning bolt at you, then you will probably live in a certain way. You will, you'll be afraid, for one, and you probably won't want to talk to him very much. But, take that down. Take that slide down. Uh, <laughs> some people are actually getting scared. Um, But if you think of God as a single person God, like God the Father, and you're like, okay, I just relate to God as this guy on the throne that's ruling and reigning over the earth, then that's gonna have certain impact on you. So what I want to um, present tonight to you is that you would consider God as Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And here's a helpful uh, icon, this was, painted by a monk in Russia, Andrei Rublev, in 1425. And um, this is a painting, originally, it's got kind of two layers. First meaning is, there's this really obscure story in Genesis chapter 18, where Abraham interacts with God in the form of three persons. Like these three visitors, like angelic visitors, come to talk to Abraham, and it's like these three dudes, and he makes them a meal, and they eat together. And so that's one level of the story, of this um, icon. But then the other level is, Rublev wanted this to also evoke um, ideas about what the Trinity is like. Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, um, Rublev was a Russian man, so you'll notice they're all white men. Now, God does not have gender nor ethnicity. He gives that to us, but God is different and others. So this is only a metaphor, all right? Don't get hung up on that. So there's some interesting things. There's a ton of layers of detail and intricacy and meaning in this um, icon, but just a couple things. Notice, first of all, that each head is tilted toward the other, and it's a slight nod, no pun intended, of, uh, of deference and honor each to the other. Also, you'll notice that um, they're wearing different colored garments, and it's kind of hard with the, this replica, but the first one is to have gold in it, and that was to represent God the Father in his prominence and in his perfection. The next one was the blue in the middle. That's supposed to be Jesus, and the idea was that Jesus, the God-man, came and lived, joined humanity on earth, so it combines the blue 
of the skies and the blue of the ocean as Jesus was on earth. And then the, on the right side there is the Holy Spirit with a red um, gown and the red, or excuse me, green, and the green is supposed to be um, the symbol of new life, like new, um, like nature growing, but also the new life that, this, that the Holy Spirit brings. Now, what's, what else is interesting is look at the, again, the person on the far right, your right, is Holy Spirit, and notice the hand. The hand is tilted, and it's almost like a beckoning, so that the effect that this uh, painting is supposed to have is that you, if you were standing in front of it, looking at it, would have a sense of being drawn into it, of being like welcomed to their table. And the, the legend is that um, the original icon, when it was uncovered after years of um, being lost, had in the front of it, like where that little square of the table is there, was actually some kind of glue or adhesive. And the, the, the idea was that originally it had a mirror there. So when you walked up at like head height to look at this icon, you actually saw your reflection as a person sitting at the table with the three. Isn't that cool? So, think about this for a minute. Rublev wanted this icon to beckon us into the circle of love between the Father, Son, and Spirit. So unlike Zeus, this pagan god who wants to punish you if you step out of line, Rublev's idea was that God is actually reaching out to humanity, welcoming us in to relationship with Father, Son, Spirit, like sitting down to a meal. So what we want to do tonight is we want to think about the Trinity and how the Father, the Son, and the Spirit relate to one another and see what we can learn from them for community. Sound good? Sound okay? All right. Okay. Good. Thank you. We're doing it anyways. Uh, So we begin with Genesis chapter 1. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God creates the heaven and earth. And it gets to verse 26, and it says this. Then God said, let us, and that pronoun there is first person plural. That's why your English translators took the Hebrew and turned it into us. God, represented in this first chapter of Scripture, is a plurality. One God, three persons. So let us make mankind in our image. Turn over to verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Really interesting. Right out the gate, first chapter of Scripture, you see that we're created out of a diverse community to be a diverse community. In our uh, recommended reading for this practice, there was a book that maybe you saw, maybe some of you looked at, called The Relational Soul. And the authors capture this idea so well. Here's what they say. We are relational beings because we were created in the image of a relational God. By definition, the Christian God exists in relationship as Father, Son, and Spirit. While existing as three distinct persons, they share one divine essence that's described as love. For God is love. God can only be love if God exists as community. In other words, if you're alone, you can't be loving. 
But if you have community there present, you have someone to love. And then the last sentence is great. We were created with this relational likeness, and we long for relational connection because God exists in a relationship of love. So what we want to do is kind of look inside of that. What is the relationship like between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? How do they relate? Have you ever thought about that? How does the Father relate to the Son, the Son to the Father, and the Holy Spirit fit in all of that? Now, obviously, we don't have time to look at all the different aspects of the Trinity. We just have a few minutes, um, so they will be limited in our scope, but I do think we can make some serious headway tonight. So would you turn next with me to Matthew chapter 3. This is a fantastic snapshot of where you see Father, Son, and Spirit interacting together. There's a few of these, and this is definitely one of my favorite. Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Bless you. That was me, not in the text. Jesus replied, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And John's like, okay, he consented. Verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was open. And imagine yourself standing on the riverbank of the Jordan watching this all happen. Heaven opened, and he saw the Spirit of God, visually saw the Spirit of God, descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. So what an incredible moment. See the Father, Son, and the Spirit interacting right here. Now listen, in the, um, the world of biblical narrative, as you look at a character, you look at the life of David, you look at Jesus as he interacts in the world of the narrative, anytime a biblical character speaks, is really important because you get to find out what's going on in their heart. Like for instance, if Jesus goes over and you read these action words, Jesus went um, to this woman and he touched her and he healed her. You can make certain judgments and assumptions based on his action. He went to the woman, he touched her, he healed her. But how much more if Jesus speaks and says, woman, because of your faith, be healed. Then you're like a whole nother level. You're like, whoa, I could assume some things if I just watched Jesus go heal this woman, but now that he speaks and out of his heart, I know what he's thinking. He's going to her because of her faith, right? So notice this. God the Father, as a biblical character right here, speaks important words. What comes out of his heart when he sees his son? It's like he blurts out, this is my son whom I love in him I'm well pleased. The thing that is in the Father's heart as he sees his son Jesus is this immense love, this incredible enjoyment. And we can actually learn a lot about the relational dynamics of the Trinity by looking just at how the Father relates to the Son. And in this moment, I imagine God the Father, like any proud dad, he's just blurting out, he's like, that's my kid. I love him. He's amazing. And some of you guys are super annoyed with parents on social media because this is what they do. They're like, my kid went to the bathroom. Did you see it? 
It was amazing. And you're like, unfollow. <laughs> that's one of the things that's definitely wrong with social media. But as a parent, you get excited. You love your kids. You're, you're crazy about them. And when they do the, the slightest thing, you're like, did you see that? That was amazing. And that's how God the Father feels about Jesus. Now, what's crazy is God the Father didn't just meet Jesus when he was born. Now, when my son Simon was born, hey, Simon. When my son Simon was born, hey, Dad. He's like, don't do anything you're going to regret, Dad. Uh, when my son Simon was born, and as a parent, when your parents here, I know there's some here, when you're, you have your first child, you actually kind of lose your mind a little bit. You really don't know what love is like. You do know, but there's another layer of intense like revelation when you look at your child and you love them. It's incredible. And I talk to young dads here in the church all the time that are like, my priorities are completely different now. I had this kid and now like, I don't, even, I don't even know what I was doing with my life before, but I know what I'm doing now. I'm going to like take care of this guy. I'm going to love this. Everything changes radically. It's an amazing thing that we can experience as humans. However, Jesus was always with the Father. So think about this. Um, Jesus says, and he, this basically got him killed, but around the Jewish, Jewish religious leaders, he said things like, before Abraham was, because Abraham was like their guy, right? from 500, 600 years ago, they're like, Abraham's our guy. And he's like, before Abraham was, I am. And then they're like, dude, we're gonna kill you. This guy thinks he's equal with God. Now here's the thing, how was Jesus around before Abraham? How can Jesus say things like, I am? Well, it's interesting, in, in the Gospel of John, in the prologue, in the very beginning, John kind of echoes back to Genesis 1, and he says, in the beginning, was the word, and the word in Greek is logos, the expression. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Then the word became flesh and lived among us. So there's this reality that the second person of the Trinity, who later is born and named Jesus, was pre-incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, living with the Father in eternity. And then at some point became the God-man. And here's what I'm getting at. Jesus says about the Father, Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. There's this, it's mind-blowing to me. There's this crazy reality that before any of this existed, before time existed, outside of time was the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in a perfect community of love. Isn't that Nuts. So the first person of the Trinity is um, identified as a father. Is he actually like a human father? No, he's a, it's a metaphor. God the Father is like a father, and Jesus relates to him as father, so that's what we do as well. Now listen, a father is a person who gives life. Like, so what does it mean that God's a father? Well, he gives life. A father begets life. To, to make something that's other is just like, you know, a bird makes a nest, right? The nest isn't the same as the bird. The bird makes this thing, right? It's a smart bird, but it just makes a nest. But to beget is to make something, create something in your own image. And God, as the Father, 
begets. That's what he does. He creates children in his image. And so before all things, God was eternally a father loving his son. And so we learn that God has always been inherently outward flowing, life-giving in his love. God was not alone waiting to love somebody. He was eternally outwardly focused, loving his son. And that's why John later in 1 John can say something like, dear friends to us as followers, dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God. It comes out of God. God is love. Love flows out of him. And eventually, out of that love, the Father sends the Son. So just what I'm getting at here is before anything else, before all eternity, God the Father was loving and delighting in his Son. And that's kind of like how he relates, right? Now, as people, theologians and followers of Jesus have tried to wrap their head around what is, what is the essence of God the Father? What is he like? They've looked for metaphors, and here's, I think, a helpful one from antiquity, which is he's like a fountain. So a fountain, in its very nature, must pour forth water. If a fountain stops pouring forth water, it's no longer a fountain. It's, I don't know, a hole in the ground. It's like nothing, right? However, the Father, in his essence, is constantly outward flowing in love. God is love. And his love isn't a love that he keeps himself. That wouldn't even be love. His love forever has been outward flowing, pouring out onto his son. So the most foundational identity and essence of who the father is, is love. And he's always loved his son. That's why when he gets a moment at Jesus' baptism, Jesus comes up out of the water and the father's like, that's my son. I love him. He just couldn't wait. He's been saying it literally for eternity. I mean, if you peel back these little moments, like Daniel 7, you get this moment of like, what's happening in heaven? And it's God the Father honoring the Son. Then in Revelation 7, go look these up on your own time, but in Revelation 7, same thing. Like basically what the Father has been doing in heaven for eternity is honoring and loving and like elevating, look at my Son. That's what he's been doing. He's all about it. And Jesus, like a confident kid, just is like, in, as he's in conversation with people, he knows, he's deeply assured of the Father's love for him. He's always talking about it. And people that like, didn't like it eventually killed him for it. Jesus said things like, yeah, the Father loves the Son, and he's placed everything into the Son's hands. And Jesus' enemies were like, what? And then he's like, yeah, the Father loves the Son. He shows him everything that he's going to do. Now, here's the thing. This is what's mind-blowing. Jesus says this. He says, Father, you have loved my disciples, all the followers that are going to come, in the same way that you have loved me. Think about that for a second. In the same way that God the Father loves his son Jesus, he also loves you like that. The way that God the Father loves you is the same way that he loves Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but that is potentially life-changing. At the center of the universe is a perfect father loving his child, and that child is you. 
And, you know, I was reflecting on this as I've been teaching, and this morning uh, we were worshiping, and I was thinking about this, and then I just had this thought of, like, my teenage years when I was actively shunning anything that had to do with God. My parents, church, I was just so against it, so didn't want anything to do with it. And I was, at 17, kind of the end of that season, I was becoming so empty, and I was starting to just feel the weight of doing what I wanted to do, doing what my friends wanted me to do, doing what the culture wanted me to do, and it was not, I wasn't in a good place. And in the middle of that, God's love broke through to me. It was absolutely incredible. And it didn't change everything. It wasn't easy. It actually made things really, really hard because I had a bunch of friends that were living like there was no God. And then now God's showing me that he's got this incredible love and it was getting the deepest parts of like, that's what my life is going to be about. That's what I'm here for. That's where I can finally have peace. It was in God's, it made things very difficult. But I was thinking this morning like, man, what if God hadn't stepped in? If I fast-forwarded 25 years from that moment of being 17, what would my life be like now? And it wouldn't be good. What's incredible about God is that the Scripture says that, that God demonstrates, he shows what his love is like, that while we are sinners, while we are turning our back on God, we're like, no thanks, we got this, God, forget you. While we're doing that, he sends Christ to die for us. It's incredible because really, it's not so much about the object of love. Now, you guys are amazing. Don't, you're made in God's image. You're incredible. But God's love for you is actually more about the source, not the object. God is love. This is just what he does. And you can't stop it. It's absolutely undeniable. So why does God do this? Why does he love because that's who he is. And for some of you guys tonight, maybe this is the one thing that you need to hear tonight. You need to just know that wherever you've been, whatever you've been doing, whatever you haven't been doing, whatever guilt, shame you've put on yourself, others have put on you, or the enemy, because there's an enemy against you that's put on you, whatever things that you think disqualify you from God's love, do not. You can't, you can't stop it. Yeah, yeah, this guy knows. So, the Father loves the Son, and the Son returns the love back to the Father. Jesus says this, The world must learn that I love the Father, and I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. So it's really interesting. In this dynamic, God the Father is just crazy about his love for the Son, and the Son reflects it back to the Father. But there's a unique shape, a definite shape to their relationship. So let's look at this a little bit deeply. Um, a great author, Michael Reeves, writing about the Trinity, says this. Overall, the Father is the lover and the Son the beloved. The Bible is awash with talk of the Father's love for the Son, but while the Son clearly does love the Father, hardly anything is said about it. The Father's love is primary. The father is the loving head. In other words, the shape of the father-son relationship begins as a gracious cascade, like a waterfall of love. As the father is the lover and the son uh, is the lover and the head of the son, so the son goes out to be the lover and the head of the church. See how it goes? Father to son 
church. And Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, says the Son. Absolutely amazing. And I know what you're thinking. Some of you are saying, yeah, but what about the Spirit? I know. We're ready for it. So where's the Spirit fit into all this, right? St. Augustine, in the third century, spent his whole life reflecting on the Trinity. And some of you guys are like, what am I doing with mine? Well, it's not too late. Get started. Start reflecting on the Trinity. And, and, and he always explained the Trinity in terms of love. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. And then he had this poetic explanation. He said, and the bond of love between the Father and the Son is a person, the Holy Spirit. C.S. Lewis said it like this. The union between the Father and the Son is such a live, concrete thing that this union itself is a person. So the best way we can describe the Spirit, the best word is the Spirit, is love. He's the love between the Father and the Son. The Spirit is a person. I mean, he does everything uh, a person would do. The Holy Spirit teaches. He guides. He listens. He speaks. He has a mind. He has a will. You can grieve the Spirit. The Spirit leads. He encourages. He comforts. He turns our hearts towards the center of the Father's affection for the Son. The Spirit is a person, and he is the love of God sent to dwell in us. And the Father and the Son, they send the Spirit together. I mean, can you always see them conspiring, like the Father and the Son, they're like, oh, wait till we send the Spirit. They're going to love it, you know? They wanted to send their love, the love between them, to be in us and with us forever. Isn't that great? So, um, in summary, we're thinking about the relationships in the Trinity, and after examining Um, all of this, one scholar, Mark Shaw, came up with these four characteristics that are really helpful um, to define what relationships are like in the Trinity. And these are his four things. He said, the Trinity relationships are marked by full equality, glad submission, joyful intimacy, and mutual deference. And a friend of mine pointed out uh, at the last gathering, he said, this is also a great framework for marriage. To which is like, yeah, absolutely. We see the relationship. It's so all we're trying to do is see the relationship in the Trinity and see how can we mirror that in our human relationship. So absolutely this relates to marriage. So full equality. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And then people try and kill him for making himself equal to God. And then what's, so you see that all between the Father and the Son, equality. But then also, Jesus, when talking about the Spirit, says, I Jesus says, I will send another advocate like me. In other words, Jesus is an advocate for humanity, and he's going to send another of the same essence, another like him who is the Holy Spirit. Jesus also says, I'm going to leave so someone greater can come. You see full equality between Father, Son, Spirit. You also see glad submission. You see this most strongly as the Father and the Son interact. And Jesus, the prime example, is Jesus in the garden when he's wrestling with the Father about going to the cross, and he says those famous words, not my will, but yours be done. You also see this in the Spirit. The Spirit comes but says he will not speak, but only what he hears. The Spirit comes, and whatever the Father and the Son give the Spirit to speak, that's what he speaks. There's glad submission 
You know, submission for us oftentimes is like, don't, don't use that word. But in the Trinity, it's beautiful. Joyful intimacy, um, as we just talked about for like the past 10 minutes, you see between the Father and the Son that there is this love between them. Everything Jesus does is full of love. And everything Jesus does is by the power of the Spirit. He's intimately acquainted with the Spirit. And finally, you see in the Trinity, mutual deference, which means they're constantly, like Rublev with the tilted heads, they're constantly deferring to one another. God the Father's like, yeah, but have you seen Jesus? And Jesus is like, yeah, but I'm gonna send the Spirit. They're constantly looking to the other, praising the other, giving to the other. The the Spirit, one of the Spirit's roles is constantly pointing us to the Father and the Son. Now, think about it for a second. Who wouldn't want to be part of a community like that? Where each person is treated with full equality, where people don't force their own personal agenda or what they think would be best, but gladly submit to one another. A community marked by joyful intimacy where people can be open about what they really struggle with and still be fully accepted. A place where people defer to one another and are always giving to the other instead of wanting to be heard and wanting to have your thing be the smart thing, the funny thing, the cool thing, you're constantly lifting up another. Now, this relational dynamic, as people have studied this, particularly in the Middle Ages, they came up with a term for it called the divine dance. And in Greek, that's perichoresis. Can you say that? Perichoresis? Yeah, that was a good try. Peri, just kidding. You guys were amazing. It was the best, I'm serious, the best all day. That, that wasn't true. Peri, peri is the prefix that means around, like perimeter. And the second part of the word comes from the stem chorea, which we get choreography. So it means to dance around. So in the Middle Ages, the theologians called this interaction between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit the divine dance, a dance in a circle of love and honor for one and another. Um, I found this brilliant quote by Catherine Marie Lacugna, and she said, great name, she says it like this. This is so good. The triune persons experience one fluid motion of encircling, encompassing, permeating, enveloping, outstretching. There are neither leaders nor followers in the divine dance, only eternal movement of reciprocal giving and receiving, giving again and receiving again. The divine dance is fully personal and interpersonal, expressing the essence and unity of God. And you guys, the most amazing thing about the Trinity the divine dance of mutual giving, receiving, loving, honoring, is that the circle of the Trinity is open, not closed. We have actually been invited to participate in the divine dance. If you go back to the, um, the icon from Rublev, notice the posture of welcome and hospitality. There's literally an empty seat at the table, and you're being Beckoned, beckoned in. Just as Jesus says, come all who are weary and heavy laden, come, eat with me. Jesus' invitation is for anyone and everyone to come sit at the table with the Father and the Spirit. And as his followers, this is the kind of hospitality we want to have. And that's why we say things every Sunday like, 
wherever you're coming from, whatever you think about God, you are welcomed here. We want to create that kind of atmosphere, and that's why we do Alpha. Alpha, if you haven't been, is literally a meal together with people that, you know, some strangers or some friends, they can come together to talk about what's the most important thing in our life and what we think about life and faith in God. I mean, it's literally a space at a table to welcome people to listen and to support them in their journey. And let's be honest, I know for myself, from middle school to middle age, there's something about being invited to eat with others when you're new. I mean, even as an adult, have you been like out of town somewhere at a conference or something or at a new school event and you go to eat and you're literally back in middle school again and you're like, where can I say, you know? Some of us now are just like, take me away, take this loneliness away, entertain me quickly. You know, you're just like, look at the phone, make the pain go away. But in the old days, pre-phone and digital distraction, that was a serious, awkward moment. And I think there's just something in us. We all want to be welcomed to sit at the table. And here's how Jesus, like, so what does this life look like? Okay, you're saying I'm invited into, be with God in the center of the Trinity. What, what is that even like? Well, here's how Jesus describes it. He describes it like this mutual indwelling. Here's some of the things Jesus says about it. He says, I am in the Father, and you, his followers, are in me, and I am in you. Or in speaking to the Father, he says, Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Or he says, I in them, Father, you in me, so that they, meaning you guys, may be brought to full unity. And then finally, um, Jesus says to the Father, I have made you known, Father, to them, and I will continue to make them known in order that the love that you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. In other words, in Jesus' paradigm, he is in us, and we are also in him. And I don't know if you've ever seen that stained glass right up there on that wall above us. It's getting a little bit dark right now, but that's supposed to be Paul at the Areopagus. Paul is, um, in, in Acts 17, he's interacting with these pagan philosophers, not followers of Jesus, philosophers of that day. And he quotes one of their own philosophers that's there in that script. It's so beautiful. And it says, Paul says this line that's quoting one of their pagan philosophers. He says, because they're like, yeah, who is this God? You know, we're looking for this God. Where is he? And he says, for in him, in God, we live and we move and we have our being. This idea that God's presence, the Trinitarian presence, is right here. And isn't this what the kingdom of God is about? Jesus stepped on the scene and it's like first century agrarian society where people are literally looking for food each day hand to mouth, and Jesus comes into their scene and he says, the kingdom of God is here right now. In other words, the full access of heaven is here on earth. Isn't that incredible? That's the message of the kingdom that we can actually have this intimacy with God. Um, Daryl Johnson in his excellent little book called Experience in the Trinity says it this way. God has established an intimate two-way relation between himself and us and us and himself. 
making himself accessible to us and giving us entry into the inner fellowship of God's life. God draws near to us in such a way to draw us near to himself within the circle of knowing himself. The community at the center of the universe draws me in. I was brought into being and you were brought into being by the Trinity to be a co-lover with the Trinity. That's crazy. He goes on. The living God, as the Trinitarian God, is an infinitely content God. God's not isolated. God's not needy. God is not missing anything. Yet, because the love of the lover and beloved, father and son, because that love cannot be contained, God created us to be co-lovers with him. That is, God expands the circle to include us as mere mortals within the circle of knowing himself. That's insane. We're invited to the table to sit and know how God the Father relates to the Son and the Spirit. We're welcomed all the way in. It's absolutely astounding. So the question is, if God has shown us this kind of openness, this kind of hospitality, then what kind of people should we be? If we're made in his image, what does it look like for us then to welcome others? Paul, in his uh, section on what a community of love looks like, it's where John Mark taught out of last week about honor. Paul says this line, he says, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. Hospitality literally means love of the stranger. It's all about welcoming people in. So I don't know about you, but I think what that's getting at is that we would be the kind of people with our friend groups, with our family, that welcome others in. The love of the Trinity is this outward, overflowing to others, spilling over kind of love. Now, you know, um, when I was growing up, I had two older sisters. It's kind of weird. I still do. So they were my older sisters then. They still are. And um, I had like three moms, basically. And I couldn't get away with anything. And I couldn't wait for the day when both sisters went off to college. And they did. But then something unexpected happened. My sister's friend, who was getting a graduate degree in like marriage and family as a therapist, was invited by my parents and by my sister to come live with us. So I finally had the whole kingdom to myself. And then this woman, who became a dear older sister to me, comes in. And not only that, she's a therapist. So every meal was like her analyzing me, <laughs> which was exactly the kind of scrutiny I was trying to get away from. After that, uh, my sister was on the East Coast in school, and she met this guy, Mohammed, from the Central African Republic, who was coming to my hometown, to San Jose, for an internship. And he, she told him, you can just stay with my family. So he shows up. And I thought it was just for a couple days, and it ended up being an entire year. <laughs> Finally, when I was a senior in high school, I realized a good friend of mine, Arash, uh, a great friend, Persian guy, um, his family was moving to, across the state to a different city, and we're halfway through our senior year. And I realized, oh, now I get one. So I went to my parents, and I said, hey, Arash needs a place to live for the second semester. Can he stay with us? To which they said, yes. 
because they were basically into running this kind of United Nations youth hostel type <laughs> project. And all I really wanted was the house to myself. However, my parents uh, deeply impacted me and many others because they had this lifestyle and this perspective that their home was open and that the kitchen table was open. And that was the way that they followed Jesus. So as we kind of land the plane tonight, um, what would that look like for you? If you are a couple or if you're a family, think about those that would love to be included in. Maybe even for like a Friday night, like the end of the week, the beginning of Sabbath. You know, um, there's something in us in this culture where it comes to the end of the week. And if you've worked hard, you want to be around your people. For me, it usually involves pizza, ice cream, movie, the end of the week. And you want to be with your people and be able to relax. Many people, I think, just want a seat on the couch, you know? So I think for us as a community, we need to think, like, who are those people? If you have a friend group, who are those that you could invite to your next outing? Who are those that are on the outside that would be love to be invited in? If you're a family or a couple, who's a friend that you could invite over to share a meal? And as I kind of has been, have been reflecting on my life through this teaching, I realized that I get busy. Three kids that are active doing stuff, working at the church and all your guys' problems. Just kidding. kidding. Uh, You know, (laughs) working on a house that I'm renovating, all this stuff, I can easily forget to think outside of my natural and normal circles. And there's been just a couple moments even this summer where Jenny and I have thought about like, oh, who could we invite to go do this thing with us that we're not normally with? And honestly, those moments, to do something even with our family, and in those moments, they have been the richest and most fulfilling things of the summer. So, just as the Trinitarian God has opened up their circle and invited you to join them at their table. The question for tonight is, who could you invite to sit at yours? Thank you for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. We are in the middle of a year-long capital campaign to raise money to buy a building on the inner core, an old, beautiful, historic church building about a mile from where we meet right now. If you have been blessed at all by this podcast and would like to give to that over and above your regular giving, to your church, wherever you call home. We would love to have you participate in that. Feel free to visit bridgetown.church slash give for more information. Thanks for listening.